This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. During the month of March, Dr. Elisa Usimeki of Helsinki University came to CTR to give a seminar on the topic Wisdom and Torah in Jewish Antiquity. What can we learn from the Dead Sea Scrolls? The seminar was very much a transdisciplinary event and hosted by religious history, all the New Testament studies, as well as Jewish studies of CTR. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I'm really um, yeah, grateful for, for this um, seminar and really looking forward to our conversation today. I said I come from Helsinki. I've also studied in Manchester and Yale and a little bit in Jerusalem as well. But um, I've mostly been in Helsinki and that's where I'm employed at the moment as well. So I finished my doctoral dissertation in 2013 and it was actually on Wisdom and Torah and Dead Sea Scrolls. And then after that, I worked um, as an Academy of Finland postdoctoral research, postdoctoral fellow, and now I'm at the Collegium for Advanced Studies, which is an interdisciplinary research institute at the University of Helsinki. And yeah, in recent years, I mostly worked on the figure of the sage in Hellenistic period, and then also early Jewish virtue discourses and ideas of good life um, in the Jewish tradition. But today, I'm going to go back to the topic of my dissertation, and we're going to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and then in the second half um, some of the texts. One of is the topic of my dissertation for Q525, so you will have those texts um, on the handout, but we will leave the handout aside now and yeah, come back to it later. So yeah, I guess we can then move on to the presentation today. As said, my topic is Wisdom and Torah and Jewish Antiquity. What can we learn from the Dead Sea Scrolls? And before we um, start to study the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think we should have a few remarks on the concepts of wisdom and Torah because they are both of them very slippery concepts and can mean a lot of different things which can be confusing. So clearly in the Bible and other ancient Jewish literature there are multiple wisdoms. The Hebrew term chokhmah, like the Greek Sophia, can mean, for instance, mental capacity, um, skills and specialties, or a specific body of knowledge and expertise. And also when we talk about a body of knowledge, it can have very many different dimensions, for instance, metaphysical, cosmic, social, and ethical. Also sometimes when we talk about wisdom in the Bible, we, need the, we mean the personified figure of wisdom, female wisdom that we know, especially from Proverbs 8 and then some later materials. Wisdom can also refer to the category of wisdom literature, which is an ethic, heuristic, um, scholarly concept. What we now mean um, with wisdom literature does not denote a single literary genre or one particular ideology. Rather, the question is about an unbound tradition and a mode of discourse, which makes it difficult to yeah, try the, uh, or define what, what um, belongs to wisdom literature and what does not. And often the body of wisdom text is identified in a pretty impressionistic manner. 
especially based on the term chokhmah and other related terminology such as knowledge or understanding or insight. We also have um, typical formal elements such as sayings, um, exhortations, poems and speeches. There are certain recurrent themes and um, aspects of content like practical ethics or creative order. And then in terms of function, the tone is often didactic or formative. But yeah, wisdom can be many things and it can also um, yeah, refer to a body of literature which is quite difficult to, to define and this is something we will see when we move on later to look at the occurrences of um, or passages where wisdom and Torah are associated with each other. Similarly, the Hebrew term Torah, which was then translated as the Greek nomos, has many meeting, meanings. Etymologically, the lexical meaning of Torah is instruction, comes from the root yara. And then in Second Temple Judaism, um, over time, Torah becomes to denote the divine instruction or revelation of Israel. There are also certain nuances related to the developing um, collection, sorry, developing collection of scripture. So, in the later tradition, sometimes Torah means law or the wider legal heritage, and scholars often think that this development was affected by the Greek translation nomos, which is no more static than the Hebrew Torah. But this um, development is quite late. John Collins has recently argued that it's not until the Maccabean period that we actually have um, occurrences where Torah means like law in particular. Torah can also mean the Pentateuch, the first part of the Hebrew Bible, or the wider Mosaic discourse, which includes all kinds of interpretative materials related to Pentateuch, such as the Book of Jubilees or um, the Temple Scroll from Qumran, for instance. But what we can, I guess, what would be useful for us to remember for the purposes of this paper is that Torah is not a book in the modern sense of the word. So here I quote two scholars, first Hindi Naim, and she writes that Torah was not limited to a particular corpus of text, but was inextricably linked to a broader tradition of extra-biblical law and narrative interpretation and cosmic wisdom. Similarly, Eva Mrosek writes that Torah rarely refers to specific titles with particular textual forms. Rather, it stands for a loose ideal type of divine instruction or writing. So let's keep this uh, multiplicity of meanings in mind and also the fact that, yeah, we shouldn't be too, too quick to decide what Torah means in the Second Temple period based on, on the later uses of the term, but look at the each um, case on its own. So clearly the association between wisdom and Torah was known already before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a lot of cross-fertilization of wisdom and Torah traditions in the Bibles. So usually um, scholars start the, uh, tracing the kind of um, development of the tradition in Deuteronomy. And this is particularly famous, this passage in Deuteronomy 4 verses 5 to 6. It's part of Moses' farewell speech and sermon where he um, talks about worship of Yahweh and the rejection of idolatry. And here Moses speaks like this. See, just as the Lord my God has charged me, I now teach you statutes and ordinances for you to observe in the land that you are to enter and occupy. You must observe them diligently, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is wise and discerning people. So there is the idea that 
um, observing the Torah like marks Israel's wisdom in the eyes of other nations. And there are also other passages of Deuteronomy that show the influence of wisdom discourse, but this is particularly famous when it comes to wisdom and Torah. And other text of the Hebrew Bible that is usually mentioned in this respect is Jeremiah 8, verses 8 to 9, where it reads, How can you say we are wise and the Torah of the Lord is with us, when in fact the false pen of the scribes has made it into a lie? The wise shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken, since they have rejected the word of the Lord, what wisdom is in them. It's a debated passage. Um, it's meaning, um, scholars have proposed different interpretations of the passage, but there seems to be a contrast between the thought of Yahweh and the lie of the scribes. So there is idea that um, writing per se is not bad, but it's um, it can be bad if a lying spirit motivates it. Then the third text of Hebrew Bible that is relevant for us is Ezra and chapter 7. So this is part of Artaxerxes' decree, which is written in Aramaic. Um, the decree gives permission to Ezra to migrate from Babylon to Judah, and Ezra is sent on a mission. The text authenticity is obviously very disputed, um, but for our purposes it's interesting the way in which um, law and wisdom are used in parallel literary structures. So, first in verse 14, it says, For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Here, this Aramaic term, that, it can also mean like religion or decree, so it's a little bit, yeah. Yeah, open to interpretation, but, but this is, um, still scholars usually think that this passage is important for wisdom and Torah, because then later on in verse 25, it continues, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river who know the laws of your God, and you shall teach those who do not know them. So basically, there is an identical literary um, structure where... Um, the terms um, dot and then chokma are used. Scholars also often mention the so-called wisdom psalms. This category of psalms is not any clearly defined. Um, it continues to be debated what counts as a wisdom psalm, but there are clearly some psalms that show lots of wisdom motifs. And many of these psalms with wisdom motifs also use Torah and related vocabulary. So for instance, we have two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 119, that both start with Macarisms. Happy is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and on his Torah they meditate day and night. And then in Psalm 119, happy are those whose ways is blameless, who walk in the Torah of the Lord. Third Psalm that is usually mentioned in this context is Psalm 19, which starts the Torah of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and then continues with different types of um, law-related vocabulary decrees, how they make the simple wise, and the precepts of the Lord are right. Um, and then in the end of the passage, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than also sweet also than honey and trippings of the honeycomb. So these images of God and honey are something that are often used of wisdom in the Bible. So here the 
uh, writer or writers of the psalm make use of the type of idiom that often, often um, pertains to wisdom and combine it with different types of um, legal vocabulary and praise of Torah. So we, in the Hebrew Bible, we do have much evidence for the association of wisdom and Torah, but it's interesting that the so-called wisdom texts, which means the books of Proverbs, Job, and Kohelet in the context of the Hebrew Bible, do not uh, make this association. When they use the term Torah or legal vocabulary, it never explicitly refers to the divine revelation of Israel. They also don't mention like key events of the, the Israelite narrative. It is um, yeah, famous, for instance, Proverbs 6, there's a reference to dad's or father's mitzvah and mother's um, Torah. Job obviously yeah, promotes certain type of traditional piety or the friends of Job, um, the idea of um, kind of deed and consequence. Um, also, Kohelet in the epilogue, there is the later addition where, where, um, the, where there's exhortation to keep the commandments, but these texts um, in themselves do not yet show this association within the Hebrew Bible, so it's outside the so-called wisdom corpus that we have this association between wisdom and Torah. But then when we move on um, to the Greek Bible and the Septuagint, there we have a lot of evidence for wisdom as Torah or Nomos, and key text in this respect is Ben Sirach, or Sirach in the Greek tradition. Throughout the text there are passages that claim that study or observance of commandments is a prerequisite of attaining wisdom. And here I have quoted just two examples, first from chapter 6, exercise your thoughts in the Lord's ordinances and on his commandments continually meditate. It is he who will make your heart firm and the desire for wisdom will be given to you. And then in the end of the book, in chapter 51, for I intended to practice her, my soul has grappled with her, and in the performance of the law I was exacting. So passages like this, there are lots of them, but what scholars usually mention in this context is the wisdom poem of chapter 24, which explicitly identifies wisdom and nomos. The poem tells about wisdom's origin as the word of God and then about her landing in Jerusalem. So we can, we can now have a um, closer look at the poem. It's a very long poem, so we're not going to go through it in detail, but just... Um, you see here that it first um, starts with wisdom praising herself and telling how she dwelt in the highest heavens um, by the Most High during the creation. And then God um, uh, commanded wisdom to make dwelling in Jacob and in Israel. And then wisdom found her place in, in Zion and Jerusalem. And then wisdom continues to talk about herself in the first person, applying different types of like flora imagery to her. Especially intriguing when we get to later the New Testament is that wisdom talks about herself as the wine and then invites people to come to her and eat from her fruits. And then the poem continues in verse 23, with an identification of wisdom and Torah, it says, All this is the book of the covenant of the Most High God, the law that Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the congregations of Jacob. And here is the term, the book of the covenant. It's used as a synonym to the book of Torah in other places in the Hebrew Bible. And then this begins a new uh, part of the poem, 
which is a place of Torah, which flows like all these different different uh, rivers like Pishon Tiflis and Euphrates, fills up uh, full with wisdom and understanding and creates instruction. And then in the very end of the poem, the wisdom teacher talks about himself in the first person as a canal from a river who um, grants instruction to the students and pours it out like prophecy to the future generation. So telling about the efforts of the of the teacher. But this is an interesting interesting passage. On the one hand it draws an earlier Hebrew literature. So for instance this passage where wisdom finds her place in um, Jerusalem, it has been argued that the author makes use of the Deuteronomic law of cult centralization. So there's the idea that wisdom chose Israel just as sacrifices are to be performed in one temple. Um, and then obviously later on there is much, much um, resonance with this idea of Israel as wisdom's home in the so-called praise of the ancestors. But then also this text has a clearly Hellenistic context. So Torah is seen as an um, announcement of the world's prime, primeval order. It's the first act of creation, like Logos is the divine principle governing the cosmos in Stoic philosophy. And therefore, the implied idea is that Torah enables one to grasp, grasp the all-embracing logos, the, the universal wisdom. It's the principle of divine order that is available to Israel. This is the most famous passage in this text of the Septuagint, but we also have some other, other late second temple Jewish texts. In the book of Baruch, um, there is the idea that that Israel can learn wisdom from the commandments, and also then the book of wisdom or the wisdom of Solomon, um, there is the idea that wisdom, um, love of wisdom means keeping wisdom's law and that wisdom was with God when God created the world and understands what is according to God's commandments. But the tradition obviously does not stop here. Also, when we go on to another Bible and look at the early Christians, how they identify Jesus with Logos and Sophia, so we do see, we do see continuities to these earlier texts. Um, famously in John 1, um, the author talks about Jesus as the Logos, pre-existence Logos. Um, but then in John 15, we have a passage where Jesus talks about himself in the first person I, as the true vine that um, produces fruit. So this is very similar to Sirach 24, how wisdom talks about um, herself there. So we have both kind of Logos imagery and Sophia um, imagery associated with Jesus in the New Testament. The same is found in the epistles in the first Corinthians. There is the idea of Jesus as the wisdom that came from God. And then, of course, Colossians first, um, there is the hymn which is famous for making use of the uh, Proverbs 8 and the idea of wisdom's um, role and function in creation. So here it's reinterpreted so that Christ is um, understood as the firstborn of all creation. And then in Colossians 2nd, it continues the text um, by saying that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. But early Christians were not the only ones who continued to make use of these traditions. Of course, um, yeah, there, there would be also some Gnostic materials, but today I'll just mention a couple of rabbinic passages. So Mishnah um, contains this tractate Birke Avat, which is often seen 
as a sign of how the rabbis um, see themselves as continuing the earlier wisdom tradition and the, the tradition of wisdom instruction. And here is, here is um, an example of how texts about wisdom are now read as referring to Torah. So for instance, in the beginning of chapter 6, starts on Rabbi Meir says, everyone who delves into Torah for its own sake earns many rewards. Others profit from his advice and guidance, insight and strength as it is written. Then quote from Proverbs, I possess advice and guidance, I am insight and strength. So basically this text in Proverbs is part of wisdom speech, so it there tells about personified wisdom, but then the rabbis understood um, that it's Torah talking about um, herself. And then afterwards there are a lot of quotations from Proverbs. I haven't quoted all of them here, but I put just a couple, couple of there so that you can see these are all from Proverbs, where they refer to wisdom or wisdom instruction, and one time after another they are understood as talking about Torah. And the same um, is in the final, final uh, verse of the chapter, how do we know that Torah is God's possession? As it is written, the Lord took possession of me at the very outset, the first of his work of old. So, the same literary strategy. Uh, passage where wisdom talks about his, herself is now read as referring to Torah. Another example from the rabbinic literature is Bereshit Rabbah, um, chapter 1. Rabbi Oshaya opened with, a, and then there's a quote from Proverbs, then I was by him as an Amman, and I was daily all delight. Then he goes through all the different meetings, meanings of Amman and explains them with the help of other biblical verses, which I don't have here. And then they present another interpretation that Amman means an architect. So here the idea is that um, an architect has a plan when he works, so God also had a plan and Torah was God's plan when he created the world. Um, and then this reflection again ends with biblical quotes. The Torah says, in the beginning God created, quote from Genesis, and there is no beginning other than Torah, as you say, we then quote from Proverbs, the Lord make me as the beginning of his way. So again, wisdom, poems about wisdom are read as referring to Torah. So this is the, some kind of idea of how wisdom and Torah are associated with each other in the different Bibles that we have. Of course, in antiquity there were no Bibles, but, but these are the texts that have been known for, for centuries and studied for centuries. So this is where scholars usually start with when they talk about the association between wisdom and Torah. But there are also other ways of approaching this um, question about the relation between wisdom and Torah. And we obviously can't go through everything, but I have two slides um, which tell about examples about what what other what else could we mean with wisdom and Torah in the context of Hebrew Bible and early Judaism. So one recent scholarly discussion has been this discussion about the so-called wisdom psalms, uh, wisdom laws. So um, Bernard Jackson famously argued that the nature of biblical law does not envisage the resolution of real-life disputes in law courts, and he. Uh, is, is arguing like this based on his study on the Covenant Code in Exodus. Uh, rather, Jackson suggests that what, the, what was operative in antiquity was private resolution based on ancient customs. And here are just two 
text of the Hebrew Bible that might support this argument. First, in Proverbs 25, we have this saying, what your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court, argue your gaze with your neighbor directly. And then also this story about the wise women of Abel suggests that there was an idea that issues should be presented to the inhabitants of the city. So probably what we now think of as courts uh, operated based on a mixed common of sense, institutions of justice and local custom. And therefore, what we now think of as legal prohibitions and early wisdom sayings, they might not have been such like radically separate phenomena in the beginning. So, so this um, whole process that is now ongoing in biblical studies, the rethinking of the nature of biblical law, um, also kind of touches on, on wisdom and Torah, even though the, these texts, they do not attest to like, texts that would parallel the concepts of wisdom and Torah, but this is another phenomenon that pertains to the discussion. And then my second example of recent scholarly discussion is, is this um, rise of teachers and scholars in Second Temple period, and this is also something that I myself have been working on. So basically in ancient Israel, as you know, the term chacham can mean a lot of different things, like there are many types of chachamim, diviners, scribes, counselors, and artisans. But then in Proverbs we start to get the idea that the wise, the chachamim, are a specific group. So there is a reference to the words of the wise, but there is not yet talk about what these people are, what they do, how they live. Um, but then interestingly in early Judaism, there are so many texts uh, witnessing to the rise of the sage teacher as an exemplary figure to be emulated and as a kind of living embodiment of wisdom. And interestingly, in some cases, the sages also are associated with Torah study or Torah devotion. So clearly Ben Sirah, Sirah text that we just had a look at, is one of these, um, the idea sage that is depicted in the book Contemplates the Torah. But then also in the Dead Sea Scrolls movement, we have two figures, Teacher of Righteousness and Maskil, who serve as um, teachers and are also associated with Torah in one way or the other. So the Teacher of Righteousness is called Dorash HaTorah, an interpreter of the Torah, whereas the Maskil um, yeah, is a leader of a Torah-focused group, and we will talk more about that group soon. But then this tradition also continues in the New Testament and rabbinic literature. So Jesus, especially as he's portrayed by Matthew, can be seen as a wise teacher and interpreter of Torah. If we think, for instance, of the Sermon on the Mount, how he reinterprets the meaning of, of Torah. For the contemporary audience in rabbinic literature, then the Hebrew term chacham comes to denote rabbi and Torah scholar. But this just as a background information on, on wisdom and Torah, what we knew before, or what we could know mostly without the Dead Sea Scrolls. So clearly they are associated, uh, which then gives rise to different questions. Is wisdom Torahized or Torah sapientialized? Is wisdom nationalized or is Torah universalized? And scholars have usually thought that, that wisdom was transformed into Torah and they often have just thought that, okay, Torah means the Deuteronomic Torah or the Pentateuch, but as we have seen, there are just so many meanings of Torah, so we have to be very careful um, with what we, how, how we define the term so that we don't yeah, be unnecessarily restrictive in our understanding. Both terms are Siberian, attest to multiple meanings, and because of this, scholars have recently 
try to get rid of this kind of either or questions and maybe more talk, think about wisdom and Torah as kind of overlapping discourses or cultural dialogues. And this is something I hope to demonstrate later with a case study. But before that, we have to have a short introduction to the Dead Sea Scrolls and now integrate them into our conversation. So, probably most of you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but if there are some who are not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they're very important textual discoveries for the study of Judaism in the Second Temple period and yeah, Hellenistic period, early Roman period. And we have textual discoveries from different sites uh, in the Judean wilderness on the west side of the Dead Sea, Gumram, Werid Murabat, Enkedi, Nahahever, Masada. But what I'm today talking about are the texts from Qumran, which is on the northwest side of the Dead Sea. We have a big amount of texts that were found in 11 caves in the 1940s and 50s, but the publication project was completed only in 1990s. So there is still much work to be done on these materials. We have approximately 900 manuscripts that attest to approximately 300 different works. And they come from the turn of the era, from the 3rd century BCE to the 1st century CE. And this corpus includes both so-called biblical and other writings. As I said, there was no Bible yet, but texts that later ended up in the Hebrew canon. And these are the earliest textual witnesses to the Hebrew Bible that we have. But then we also have a big amount of other previously unknown Jewish literature from the Hellenistic and early Roman periods that are really important for us as we, as we try to understand the um, yeah, diversity of Judaism around the turn of the era. So this, the, it, it's obviously a debated uh, issue, where did these texts come from and, and who, who wrote them. They probably have various backgrounds, but it's likely that one Jewish movement collected the corpus. And the movement behind the text was clearly concerned with wisdom, Torah, and ongoing revelation. And this is um, seen in how wisdom idiom is diffused throughout the so-called sectarian scroll. So here, sectarian refers to the text of the of this particular Jewish movement. Um, yeah, scholars have usually thought that it was um, some kind of uh, sect, or sect, or at least um, critical towards the Jerusalem uh, priesthood, but but yeah, we can leave that discussion aside now and now look at the importance of wisdom and Torah in the self-understanding of the movement and in the text that they compiled. Um, so we have terminology related to wisdom, knowledge, understanding and insight. And as I already said, maskil, literally someone who illuminates or someone who causes understanding is the key official of the movement. But their self-understanding is also closely linked with Torah, so some of the rule texts and the Besharim, which are texts that interpret um, biblical texts, kind of running commentaries, um, talk about the movement as a house or community of Torah and also as observers of Torah. And here are just um, two examples from the community rule that tell about the, at least about ideas related to the life of the movement. So. There is a strong ideal of, of Torah study each night um, that people come together and, and interpret Torah day and night. 
Um, also, a person who wants to join the movement has to give a binding oath to revert to the Torah of Moses according to all that he commanded. And then this is really interesting. Um, clarification in compliance with all that has been revealed into the sons of Zadok, the priests who keep the covenant and interpret his will unto the men of their covenant. So basically here we have a reference to the idea of ongoing revelation. So the movement understood itself as being able to receive um, God's revelation that is set in continuum with the revelation received by Moses in the past. And because of these concerns for wisdom and Torah, it's not surprising that wisdom is rather omnipresent in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So very different types of writings attest to so-called wisdom features when it comes to motives, ethos, and formative functions of these writings. But textual classification in general is very difficult because the what we may have thought as kind of distinct literary traditions based on the Hebrew Bible all the time overlap and merge in the Hebrew in the in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, for instance, wisdom, apocalypticism, prophecy, liturgy, rules, these are not um, separate from each other, but features related to all these traditions often um, come together and form interesting combinations in the in the literary um, products that were found in the caves, which makes it very difficult to classify them. And some of the wisdom-related finds tell about the movement that is behind the um, collection of the scrolls, but the wisdom-related finds also illuminate the world of Second Temple Judaism beyond its life, so only some of the wisdom-related finds seem particularly sectarian, many of them seem to come from kind of wider circles um, in the late Second Temple period, and they really can offer us uh, valuable information about Judaism in general at the time. And here is now a list of major scrolls related to wisdom. As I said, it's very difficult to classify what is wisdom, what is not. But but here are texts that scholars often mention in this context. So first of all, we do have some fragments of texts that ended up later in the Hebrew Bible or the Septuagint. We have fragments of Proverbs, Job, Kohelet, and Benzira. But then we have plenty of previously unknown materials. And these are the relatively well-preserved wisdom texts that scholars of the mention instruction on Musa al-Medin and mysteries. These two are preserved in several copies, so they seem to have been important for the movement. We have also Was of the Wicked Woman that um, renews and reinterprets the Proverbs tradition of uh, wicked woman or personified folly. Then we have also sapiential admonitions and beatitudes that we will have a closer look at today. And ways of righteousness is also pretty well preserved, but all of these are fragmentary, so none of them are like fully preserved. But but we still have um, quite much material of them, and then we have single fragments of some other texts. But as I said, wisdom really found its way to many types of discourses, and we have lots of wisdom motifs also in rule texts, liturgical poetry, testamentary literature, and so forth. And all these texts could be understood as wisdom in the broad sense of the term, but if we look at the text where like kind of wisdom motifs and concerns are particularly dominant, these are the, the writings that scholars usually come up with. And what is interesting when it comes to wisdom discourse in the Dead Sea Scrolls is how there is so much emphasis on wisdom's divine sources. So what I mean with wisdom's divine sources, um, I mean stress on Torah, 
and or another form of divine revelation. So we have ideas of esoteric revelation and then we have various forms of Torah piety. I'll just offer a few words about these two types of revelation because this is something that the Dead Sea Scrolls um, are important for our understanding of in, in the context of Jewish antiquity. So many of the texts um, focus on the transmission of knowledge concerning divine secrets and especially um, spe specific um, to the Dead Sea Scroll is this concept of Hrazni here, which contains the Persian Lord word Hraz and the Nifal participle Nihir, which could be translated as the mystery of being or the mystery of come. It's a source of wisdom that is accessible to a select few. And these texts that are interested in esoteric wisdom, they usually show cosmic awareness. There is the idea that humankind, um, it's part of a divine plan. There is a belief in future judgment and also speculation on afterlife, which shows development in comparison with the Hebrew Bible, which doesn't really care for afterlife. Um, and it's only in the yeah, same book of Daniel where we start to have this kind of apocalyptic thinking. But then, in addition to esoteric revelation, the texts are interested in divine revelation also in the form of Torah piety. And it has been suggested by Armin Lange that virtually all wisdom texts from Qumran represent Torah, Torah Weisheit or Torah wisdom. And um, this doesn't mean that Torah would be the kind of theological center or main theme of these texts, but basically all of them in one way or the other show some kind of awareness of Torah, but this can mean very different things in different contexts and the modes of impact are often, often subtle. So we may have general references to Torah or the commandments. Um, we may have diverse influence of the Pentateuch, for instance, references to the Decalogue or other specific laws, recycling Pentateuchal themes such as the Paradise narrative or reuse of Pentateuchal figures, especially the patriarchs. But what we should emphasize here is that the two types of revelation, Torah piety and esoteric revelation, are not mutually exclusive. And this for key instruction, which is the best known um, wisdom text from Qumran, and makes use of the concept of Raznihya, shows that this concept of esoteric revelation, um, Raznihya, covers, but is not confined to Torah. And how we know this is that the text tells the accuracy to seek, study, and meditate on here to attain knowledge, truth, and wisdom, but then at the same time the text also promotes Torah devotion. There are orders not to abandon the statutes or another order to walk according to the commandment. Um, there is also remains of pentateuchal themes and legal discussion. So Armin Lange has, has described Rasniha as an order of being. Scholars still continue to discuss what it is. It's a very enigmatic concept, but, but based on the fragmentary evidence, it seems to be some kind of blueprint for creation. Um, it seems to encompass the history from creation to the eschaton, the end time. Um, it's an instrument of eschatological punishment, includes ethical standards, and also articulates itself in the, in the shape of Torah. So, so this is um, kind of, yeah, introduction to the wisdom text of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and and the importance of the theme of divine revelation in them um, and the idea of divine revelation emerges both in an interest in esoteric wisdom and Torah piety and these two are not 
like mutually exclusive. But now we can have a closer look at the text that actu actually explicitly um, associate wisdom and Torah with each other. So there are many texts um, may have in passing some references that suggest the identification of wisdom and Torah. So for instance, the wise of the wicked woman that talks about the female folly um, claims that the figure of folly takes the righteous to the wrong path, which um, includes ignoring the commandment and changing the statute. Or the war scroll, which is a rule text of the Qumran movement, talks about the people of Israel who are learned in statute, comprehending in understanding. So there is again um, having statute and, and understanding are, are um, linked with each other. And then in Apocryphon of Joshua, we have a passage um, which states that by the decrease of the Most High you have given insight. So again, that the insight comes out of the decrease of the Most High. But what I want us to look at today more closely are these two texts, 4Q185 and 4Q525. Um, you can find them in the handout, but the text passages that I'm going to talk are also here on the PowerPoint, so, so you can um, have the text later if you, if you want to look at the wider context more broadly. So here we have the use of the feminine suffix. Both of them use the feminine third person singular suffix he, which is intriguing because both wisdom and Torah are feminine terms. It gives rise to the question, what does this suffix refer to? Does it conceal a pun? And first, if we look at the 4185, um, in fragments 1 to 2, column 2, you can follow from, it might be easier to follow from here. So in lines 8 to 10, it says, Happy is the person to whom she has been given. Let not the wicked boast by saying that she has not been given to him nor to Israel. So here the suffix could refer to wisdom, but it's also associated with Israel, which signals that the question is not about any kind of human wisdom. And it might implicitly identify wisdom and Torah. The text continues in the next lines 11 to 13. He says, When shall there be prosperity in her and security in her to possess her? He has to find her to gain knowledge of her. He has to bear her along. With her are the length of days, sparkle of eyes, and joy of heart. His mercies are her secrets, and his salvations are upon. And then the text is lost. But here the Think she is to be found, absorbed, and kept consciously, which leads into prosperity. And this language of finding wisdom, as well as the promises of longevity and riches, are typical of Proverbs. Then in lines 13 to 15, the text continues using the feminine suffix. Happy is the person who performs her and does not repay her. With a treacherous heart, he does not seek her, and with fatteries, he does not grasp her. As she was given to his fathers, so he in turn inherits her in all the power of his strength and with all his might without lack, and he will give her as an inheritance to the descendants. So the language of wisdom and Torah is least suggestive here. The reference to performing her reveals the motif of Torah observance, and then her pursuit is expanded to concern future generations through the motif of inheritance, which reminds us of texts such as Deuteronomy 4 and the importance of, of inheritance there or in Psalm 119. So clearly the audience plays a role in the transmission of the divine wisdom which has been revealed in Torah given to the fathers in the past. So we could say that the Israelite connotations of her heighten as the claims proceed and culminate in the final Macarism's concern with performing and inheriting her. 
and other passages of the text uh, support this kind of Torah resonance of the text. There is a command not to defy the words of Yahweh. Jacob and Isaac are portrayed as exemplary figures, and we have also fragmentary references to Exodus and the Covenant. The context does not seem to favor an attempt to distinguish between the cases where the suffix refers to wisdom and where it refers to Torah. And the same continues in another text, 4Q525 or 4Q Beatitudes, which depicts an ideal way of life. So in fragment two, we have a series of Macarisms and another poem that builds upon the last Macarism. And here the focus is on life with her, beginning with the second and first properly preserved Beatitude in line one, which proclaims happy are those who hold, hold fast to our statutes. Apparently referring to those who cling to the statutes of wisdom of Torah. Then lines two to three continue to employ the feminine suffix in the references to rejoicing her, seeking her with your hands, and not seeking her with a deceitful heart. The image of seeking her can apply to wisdom as sincere, but it also reminds one of Torah because the word darash is often used in connection with it. And then here in lines three to four, um, we have a claim, happy is the one who attains wisdom and walks in the Torah of the Most High. And this is the most um, explicit identification of wisdom and Torah in the scrolls, passage that states that achieving wisdom is parallel to walking in, that is observing Torah. And the statement opens up a new section on the ideal life of those who have found wisdom. Um, it says that the person reflects on her continually, muses on her, sets her in front of his eyes, and makes his heart perfect with her. So here, clearly the motif of reflecting on Torah is common in Hebrew literature, starting with Joshua and Psalms, and then later in Vensira. And the same use of the suffix still continues in fragment 5, in another passage which depicts ideal groups of people. So first of all, we have a claim, do not abandon to strangers your inheritance or your lot to foreigners. So this fragmentary passage shows that the question is not about any kind of wisdom, but about Israel's inheritance and lot that is not to be given up. And then later on, starting in line 9, we have um, different statements on, on wise people. So first of all, in lines 9 to 10, uh, both wisdom tradition and Torah piety are used as um, the text states, those who fear God keep her ways and walk in her statutes and do not reject her chastisements. Next, wisdom is associated with submission, perfection and meekness and the flawless are described in line 11. Those who walk in perfection turn aside injustice and do not reject her corrections or chastisements. And this designation, those who walk in perfection, is interesting because it could allude to halakhic practices, um, at least in the sectarian rule text, similar expressions are used of law observance. And then finally in line 13 we have a statement, those who love God walk humbly in her, which links Torah observance and attitude of humility with each other. So now some like reflections on these passages that we have briefly looked at. The language of wisdom and Torah is clearly very abstract, but it seems to be filled with particular nuances. 
We have the feminine suffix he, which functions as a deliberate literary device. Um, it's a device that enables multiple interpretations, as it, can, as it can refer to both wisdom and Torah, and it also serves as a pedagogical and formative um, purpose, as it seeks to change the attitude and life of the adversary towards Torah piety. And the internal evidence does not really allow for making clear distinctions between those cases when the question is about wisdom and when it is about Torah. So it seems that there was no need to distinguish between these two in the conceptual world of the authors. In the interpretation of the suffix is particularly true of 4.2525, which has the paradigmatic identification of wisdom and Torah, but we also saw that the Torah resonance of 4Q185's language kind of threw over the instruction and then culminates in the idiom of performing and inheriting her. Both of these texts um, attest to the scripturalization of wisdom poetry insofar as they show like dialogue and reuse of ancestral writings. This is something that we want to be able to um, study in this context, but it's good to um, keep in mind how it also um, affects another dimension to the Torah discourse of these texts, the reuse of earlier biblical um, texts, and also hints of it we already saw in these passages, for instance, the use of the Macarism form, uh, which seems to create a link to Psalms 1 and 119, or the idea of inheritance, which creates a link to Deuteronomy. Um, I would say that this rhetorical game of using the suffix, suffix is natural because poetry tends to make use of suggestive expression, allowing for multiple interpretations and associations. And this gives rise to the questions, what do writers actually mean by Torah? Does it have anything to do with law? The idiom lacks concreteness, but I would say that Torah does not stand for any type of instruction here, as is highlighted by the references to the past and present inheriting of her. And indeed, George Brook has suggested that the instruction, especially of 525, could be characterized as wisdom as a practical application of halacha. And here I quote um, George. In the first place, halachic exegesis is offered through the broad imitation of the content of scriptural models in the wisdom books themselves. Here it is a matter of seeking wisdom and walking in her ways. The halacha is based in practical advice for everyday living, which is the application of various principles underlying the Torah, rather than the application of individual rulings or statutes. George Brooks' proposal is incisive in that the term halacha indeed derives from the Hebrew root halach, the walk, which we also have in these texts. 525, as we have seen, uses the verb halach with regard to Torah piety, and this verb was used of law observance in late Second Temple era, as we know from the rule scrolls from Qumran. But we also know that the concept of halacha becomes fully developed only in later rabbinic literature, where it refers to the interpretation of legal passages in order to apply them to new situations. So this is something that we obviously don't have in the Dead Sea Scrolls yet, and because of this, it might be easy to dismiss Brooks' claim as anachronistic. However, I would argue that although these texts are not concerned with halacha in the later sense of the term, they do shed some light on the roots of this Jewish concept. 
So basically what Brooke seems to have in his mind is the purpose of such Torah-oriented wisdom. One could say that the aim of wisdom teaching in the Dead Sea Scroll is more or less the same than that of legal texts. So basically both texts deal with the question of how to live and they offer Torah obedience as an answer. Yet we should highlight that the styles of response are very different. Legal texts discuss the details of law observance, whereas Torah piety is abstracted into the conceptual level in parts of wisdom literature. And it's very much possible that the authors of these texts were able to um, carry on highly technical halakhic discussions, but in the context of wisdom instruction, they wanted to talk about Torah in a way that is characteristic of wisdom discourse. So, because of this, the texts don't really inform us about the development of any particular halakhic trajectories, but they do tell us about the overall importance of Torah in early Jewish pedagogy, and clearly the notion of Torah is rather vague and broad in this context, although the Pentateuch seems to be lurking in the background along with the reuse of Pentateuchal imagery, for instance. And 525, like for Q185, along with its reference to performing her, hints at the aspect of law observance by the Torah and the related suffix here that we have looked at are clearly not exhausted by legal connections. And this reminds us of Carol Newsom's argument that Torah had become a cultural symbol and an ideological sign in the second century BCE. So basically, invoking Torah in different types of discourses was a means to gain symbolic power. Kernism describes Torah as socially multi-accessual and as the site of intersecting accents. And what she um, highlights is that all words bear traces of their previous use within them. So in the case of for Q185 and for Q525, the Torah of this text is clearly Jewish, but it could still continue having and even promote the literal meaning of instruction. All these different nuances, both the etymological dynamic meaning of instruction and the more particular and even legal connotations were equally at home in late Second Temple wisdom teaching. Authors make use of social dialects that are typical of them and in the context of wisdom discourse talk about Torah was um, abstract and subtle as is typical of poetry. So here if we um, draw some conclusions based on our discussion today. So the concerns for wisdom and Torah clearly permeate early Jewish writings. So we have seen in the literature there is um, user-specific idioms, um, concepts of wisdom and Torah or other related vocabulary that are linked with each other. But then also from the viewpoint of what one could call the ancient religion, we also see the phenomenon and the rise of kind of wisdom teachers um, who also promote Torah piety or reinterpret Torah to new situations. What we see is that wisdom and Torah, they're both very separate terms and difficult to define because they can mean different things in different contexts. Wisdom clearly does not stand for a single literary genre or single tradition. Torah, in turn, is not the synonym for law or Pentateuch. It can in some contexts be, but we shouldn't um, 
expect that in all contexts it means lower dependency, rather it seems to be an ideological sign and cultural symbol that can be invoked in very different types of discourses. The Dead Sea Scrolls stress wisdom's divine sources, Dora and or Raznihye, a source of esoteric wisdom in a way that is not typical to the text of the Hebrew Bible and thus uh, forces us to rethink um, the nature of wisdom literature in the Hebrew tradition, especially when it comes to its, comes to its um, particularity. By creating new wisdom instruction, the authors of these texts could contribute to the notion of the divine Torah as the instruction of truth, and they also could appropriate Torah to serve moral instruction and the social dialect of wisdom discourse. The use of the feminine suffix um, here is one example of how the associations of wisdom and Torah are not limited to texts that employ the concepts themselves or mention them explicitly, but they can also use various literary and pedagogical devices such as the feminine suffix here that enable multiple interpretations um, and yeah, create new interesting poetry. Thank you very much for your attention and for our conversation. <laughs>